Well, let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We did have a a slight update on the bulletin. The bulletin actually carried over the title from last week. Uh, The title for this morning's sermon is actually A Witness to Christ. A Witness to Christ. We will be looking at John 1, verses 19 through 28. Through the centuries, millions of believers have come to know and worship Jesus of Nazareth for who He truly is. Jesus is the Logos, the light, and the life who was made flesh to dwell among us. And John's prologue in verses 1 through 18 introduces us to the stunning revelation, God in human flesh. Now, throughout his gospel, John will identify several witnesses to Jesus' true identity. And this first great example is a man named John the Baptist. We find him in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, that's John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. In verse 19, John the author refers to the testimony of John the Baptist. The term testimony is the same term translated witness back in verse 7, where we were briefly introduced to John already. Verse 7 reads, He came as a witness, a testimony, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. So what precisely does a witness or a testimony to the light look and sound like? Verses 19 through 34, actually, answer the question, by turning our, our attention now to John the Baptist. And John uses the term witness or testimony some 47 times in his gospel. What precisely is a witness? Well, let me pronounce for you the Greek term, martyria. Sound familiar? Our term martyr derives from the Greek term for testimony or witness in verse 19, martyrium. 
And the term did indeed refer to a witness, someone who spoke for another person. However, in the early centuries, so many witnesses to Jesus forfeited their lives that the term actually evolved into a term that referred to someone abandoning his life for the sake of this truth. Jesus is God made flesh. And this was certainly true of John the Baptist himself. John was both imprisoned and beheaded for his witness to Jesus of Nazareth. John was, in fact, the first in a long line of witnesses to abandon his life through martyrdom as a testimony to the Incarnation. According to Pew Research, close to 100,000 Christians are martyred every year for their faith. In 2015, some 273 Christians died each day. That's a little more than 11 Christians per hour. When Christians become witnesses to Christ, it is a witness unto death. You may not be called to martyrdom, and hopefully you won't be, but Christians do indeed go to their deaths, testifying to the truth of Christ's power to resurrect. Now, what did John actually confess about Jesus? Verse 19 tells of a delegation of religious authorities who had come down from Jerusalem to the Jordan to investigate John. His baptisms had created quite a sensation. And the Jewish leaders, for good reason, believed that Jerusalem was the hub of Yahweh worship. Jerusalem, after all, had the temple. And Jerusalem had the priests and the Levites who congregated there to carry out the stipulations of the Mosaic law. So, why are there religious charges just streaming out of Jerusalem down into the Jordan to be baptized by this disheveled, wandering, unapproved prophet? Who is this guy? And so the Jews put an obvious question to John at the end of verse 19. Who are you? And John's response includes three denials and one affirmation. So let's consider the denials and then the affirmation. First, John denied that he was the Christ, the Messiah. The Greek term Christos or anointed one is equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah. John says, I am not the Christ. Now, first century Palestine was actually rife with expectations of a coming Messiah, of a coming Christ. In fact, ever since the fall of Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C., 600 years earlier, the Jews have been looking for a Messiah to come. In fact, Jesus himself will later warn, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. If we were to examine the history of Israel from Judas Maccabeus in approximately the 160s B.C. up to the end of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 134 A.D., there were an astonishing number of Christ who came along. 
Jewish historian Hillel Silver writes, the first century, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple, that's Jesus' time, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of that day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. Jewish historian and scholar Hines Schreckenberg also gives a list of would-be messiahs in the post-Herodian pre-AD 70 period. His list includes Justice, son of Ezekiel, Simon of Perea, Athronges, Judas of Galilee, Thutis, an Egyptian false prophet, quote, the imposter, an unnamed group of religious enthusiasts, Menahem, son of Judas of Galilee, Simon, Simon Bargiora, John of Gishgala, the Samaritan Messiah, and a man named John the Weaver, and I'm actually omitting several. All these individuals come along and claim to be the true Messiah. Josephus also describes these false messiahs. He writes, for instance, now it came to pass while Fadus was procurator of Judea that a certain magician whose name was Thutis persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him, listen to this, to the river Jordan where John was. For he told them he was a prophet and that he would by his own command divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it, and many were deluded by his words. Hippolytus, the church father, wrote, quote, There arose some saying, I am Christ, as Simon Magus and the rest whose names I have no time to reckon up. And John himself, who wrote this gospel, elsewhere warns his readers against false Christ. And he coins a term for them. In 1 John 2 and verse 18, he says, So now many antichrists have come. Many false Christs have come already in the first century. So friends, it really is against this historical backdrop that we have to understand how strong John's denial is. Look at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny but confessed, this threefold repetition, confessed, did not deny, confessed, indicates that John the Baptist is adamant, I am not the Christ. And friends, this really is the heartbeat of true witness. Don't take an ounce of the glory that belongs to Jesus. Just take it all and deflect it right on the Christ. He's the Christ, not me. And that leads to a second denial found in verse 21. John says, I am not Elijah. Now, why Elijah? Well, the popular apocalyptic conception of that day believed that Elijah would, one, would soon return, that he would return in some way to rescue Israel. Malachi prophesied, quote, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And since Elijah had not died, he was expected to return one day and announce the end of the world. Zechariah 13 and verse 4 
indicates that false prophets sometimes did come along and imitate Elijah by wearing a hairy cloak. And of course, John the Baptist wore a cloak of camel's hair. And John's desert lifestyle and his preaching, his preaching of repentance in particular, certainly reminded the Jews of the very famous ministry of Elijah. However, John instantly denies that he is Elijah. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. John is not Elijah. But if you are a careful Bible reader, you may have a question at this point. Let's interpret very, very carefully. John is not Elijah. He was not the same flesh and blood human being who prophesied centuries earlier against Ahab and Jezebel and rode up to heaven on a flaming chariot. It's not the same guy. Nevertheless, Jesus later clarified in Matthew 11, quote, and if you are willing to accept it, he, speaking of John the Baptist, is Elijah, who is to come. Also, in Matthew 17, at the transfiguration, Jesus said, Elijah has already come. And the disciples at that moment understood, quote, he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Are we confused? Well, when you put the passages together, it's clear Elijah himself did not return to earth. However, Elijah's ministry anticipated a very similar prophet who would indeed come to announce the Messiah. When Malachi predicted that Elijah would come, he was not saying Elijah himself would somehow be reincarnated. Nevertheless, a prophet would come whose ministry so closely resembled Elijah's that you would very easily confuse the two. And it's Luke's gospel, actually, that really clears this up. A writing of John the Baptist's birth, Luke records the words of the angel to Zechariah, John's father. Here's what the angel said. He, that is John the Baptist, will go before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does that clear it all up? Elijah and John were possessed of the same spirit and the same power, and they both turned people away from evil and towards repentance. John was not Elijah, but he did indeed come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. That's why Jesus could say, Elijah has come already, and why John the Baptist can say, I am not Elijah. I hope that makes sense. All right, and now we come to John's third denial. It's found in the second half of verse 21. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Well, who is the prophet? 
We actually cannot say for certain, but most probably he is referring to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses spoke of a future prophet. A future prophet will come like himself, like Moses says, like myself, who would speak words of truth to the people. The Jews actually believed in the coming of a second Moses, a man who reminded them of the original Moses. And of course, in Matthew's gospel, you have Jesus going up on the mountain and delivering God's word like you find Moses doing as he came down from Sinai. Well, popular conception imagine that indeed an end times figure would come, this prophet would come, and he would set all things right. The Samaritans even held this prophet to be the Messiah himself. And in John 6, we'll eventually get there, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, we learn that the people ask, they wonder if Jesus is indeed, quote, the prophet who was to come into the world. And we will sort out the identity of the prophet when we get to John 6. I do believe it is, in fact, Jesus. But John here denies that he was the prophet. He is not the second Moses. Don't get me confused. Now, John was indeed a prophet, not the prophet, but a prophet. He certainly reminded people of Elijah. But the fact is, John's prophetic ministry was rather different than that of a typical prophet. He did not perform extraordinary miracles like Elijah or Elisha. Nor did he give us prophecies that came to be included in the canon of Scripture. This is dissimilar then to a man like Isaiah or to Daniel or numerous others. Rather, John's prophetic role was one of a herald, one who came to announce the coming of a very important figure, somebody who was to come along immediately after him. And we discover that important prophetic role now as we transition from John's three denials to his positive affirmation. Well, who are you, John? Look at the end of verse 22. What do you say about yourself? If you're not Elijah, if you're not Moses, if you're not the prophet, if you're not the Christ... Well, who are you? That's a fair question. And here is John's affirmation, verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John describes his ministry in the context of a prediction of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The metaphor that Isaiah used refers to making a smooth road right through the desert. Fill in the potholes, level out the hills, straighten the curves, construct a clear road ahead. This may sound very strange to us, but this was actually a feature of the ancient world where they would carve out these nice, straight, flat roads right into the capital cities. In fact, I just read recently of the ancient Anasazi Empire, 
in our own country, and the straight roads that led right in the Chaco Canyon, this major religious center, just a nice, flat, straight road for royalty to come right into the city. Now, in Isaiah's original, the metaphor pointed to a delivering God calling for the exiles to make a straight path home from captivity. Don't turn to the right or to the left, go straight home from captivity. Now, here it refers to a straight road for the coming Messiah. Build a pathway for the king to come straight into Jerusalem. That's the metaphor. That's the picture. Or by way of application, build roads for Jesus to come straight to people or for people to come straight to Jesus. That is John's role. And the metaphor clearly emphasizes the preparatory nature of John's ministry. John was a trailblazer, just clearing the path ahead for the Messiah who was to follow. And would you just notice the selflessness of his role? His goal was to bring people straight to Jesus or to bring Jesus straight to the people. John will famously say, he must increase and I must decrease. And that really has to be the goal of all gospel-centered ministry. Just make roads clear so people can come straight to Jesus and get yourself out of the way. Now, we do have to wonder how satisfactory John's answer was to the religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem. Do they actually understand what John implies? John implies that the Lord will be coming along behind me. And curiously, the leaders ask no questions of John concerning who was coming down the road after him. Well, who's coming? They seem to have missed his point entirely. Rather, they probe further the question of his baptism. In verse 25, they ask, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, the question probably does not concern the legitimacy of John's baptism. Baptism had actually been practiced by Jewish groups for some time. Jewish sectarian groups practiced proselyte baptism, the baptism of new converts. In fact, the Essenes at Qumran, and John may have had some association with the Essenes, the Essenes very regularly practiced baptism. In fact, in some cases, they practiced daily baptism. Although these, of course, were self-baptisms. The very curious feature of John's baptism was that it was administered on others. He goes around baptizing other people. So the Jews' question probably is a question of authority. If you aren't the Christ, he has authority. If you're not Elijah, well, he had authority. Or one of the prophets, and why are you going around baptizing people? And John's answer, curiously, is to take that whole discussion and turn it in a new direction, which is very consistent with his whole ministry objective. The leaders want to know why John baptizes people, but John just flattens out the road straight to the Messiah. He points them to the baptism, he points beyond his baptism straight to Jesus. So look at this. John says in verse 26, 
The hidden Messiah is already among you. He's already here. Forget about my baptism. You need to see the Messiah. Among you stands one you do not know. In essence, John says, well, my baptism isn't supposed to draw people to me or to my ministry. That's not what I'm concerned with. It is supposed to prepare people to meet Jesus, the Messiah. That's where he's going. And now the sincerity of John's desire to point people to Jesus Christ, I think is really evidenced by his statement in verse 27. John is not worthy to perform even the most menial task for the Messiah, to reach down and to loosen the sandals from Jesus' tired, worn-out feet. That's how low John is. I'm not even worthy, though, to do that much. Now, of course, to grovel at someone's feet is nearly a universal sign of servitude, of lowliness, of meekness. This is how John thinks of his ministry. I don't want the attention of myself. John says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and to touch the Messiah's feet. And has it ever occurred to you that this is precisely what Jesus does in turn for his disciples in the upper room? Stooping over, he washes their feet. John, or Jesus, John was introducing Jesus not only as the supreme king, but ultimately the supreme servant. And this is why we need to make those paths straight to Jesus, the supreme king and the supreme servant. Now, that's our text. I was going to move on, but at this point, I just really want to stop and really apply the text of John. John is a witness. He is a martyria to Christ. John comes along and he just flattens out the roads. He removes the obstacles. He labors so people can run to Christ and Christ can run to people. But I just wonder, do we really grasp this metaphor? Do we really have a good contemporary application of John's ministry? I do wonder how often well-intentioned Christians end up being more of an obstacle than a smooth road to bring people to Jesus. We could become an obstacle by our pride, our sin, our laziness, our indifference. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, the apostle tells us to be ready to give an answer to every man. But critically, in the context, he says nothing about intellectual pride about graduate degrees, about our skill in argumentation or debate. Rather, Peter emphasizes the believer's humility of lifestyle. He speaks of an unbelieving woman winning her husband to Christ through her meek and quiet spirit. In preparation for this message, I reflected again on a book that I read several years ago, and one that I think many of you have read And I actually want to spend a lot of time this morning just reading from this book because I think it really gives us a great example of someone who just comes along and levels out the road so someone else can come straight to Christ. 
The author is Rosaria Butterfield. Her book is titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I'm just curious, how many have actually read that book? Butterfield, several of you, wonderful, wonderful text. I encourage you to read it if you're really wanting to know how do you, how do you reach into the life of someone who's very, very different than yourself. As I read this, see if you can't locate the John the Baptist figure in the story. She writes, My Christian life unfolded as I was just living my life, my normal life. In the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions sat quietly in the crevices of my mind until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. Had a pastor named Ken Smith not shared the gospel with me for years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, Those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might never have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. Rosari's worldview was one of a lesbian, a secularist, and a feminist. What happens when she intersects with the Christian worldview? She writes, At that time, I was an associate professor at Syracuse University, Recently tenured in the English department, also holding a joint teaching appointment in the Center for Women's Studies. I was in a lesbian relationship with a woman who was primarily an animal activist and a nature lover, and also an adjunct professor at a neighboring university. Together we own homes, cohabiting both in life and in the university's domestic partnership policy. We were members of a Unitarian Universalist church, where I was the coordinator of what is called the Welcoming Committee the Gay and Lesbian Advocacy Group. She says, Christians always seem like bad thinkers to me. It seemed that they could maintain their worldview only because they were sheltered from the world's real problems, like the material structures of poverty and violence and racism. In spite of having a a worldview that valued flexibility, unanswerable big life questions started to nag at me. While I was doing initial research and writing for my second book, A Study of the Rise of the Religious Right in America. After I published in the local newspaper a critique of the promise keepers for their gender politics, I received a batch of mail, hate mail and fan mail. I received so many letters for this late editorial, little editorial, that I kept empty Xerox paper boxes on both sides of my desk. One for hate mail and one for fan mail. In this batch of mail, I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, then pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Listen to this. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Well, what is Pastor Smith doing? Here's what he's doing. He's leveling the road to Jesus in a very kind way. 
She continues, he didn't argue with my article. He asked me to explore and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't really know how to respond to Ken's letter, but I found myself reading and rereading it. I didn't know which box, which box to file this letter in, and so it sat on my desk and haunted me. It may seem strange to you, but no one had asked me those questions before or led me to ask them of myself. These were reasonable questions, but not the sort of questions that postmodern professors toss around at faculty meetings or at the local bar. The Bible makes it clear that reason is not the front door of faith. It takes spiritual eyes to discern spiritual matters. But how do we develop spiritual eyes unless Christians engage the culture with those questions and paradigms of mindfulness out of which spiritual logic flows. That's exactly what Ken's letter did for me. It invited me to think in ways I hadn't before. What's he doing? He's leveling the road to Jesus. Pastor Ken's letter sat on my desk for a whole week. This is six days longer than I can normally stand. It really bothered me that I didn't know where to file it. I threw it away a few times, but I always found myself digging into the department's recycling bin to reclaim it at the day's end. The letter invited me to call its author to discuss these ideas more fully. Listen to this. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I have ever received. The kindest letter of opposition. After a week, I called. Pastor Ken invited me to dinner at his house to explore some of these questions. Before we ended our phone call, almost as an afterthought, Pastor Ken also said that if I was afraid to come to some stranger's home, that he and his wife would meet me at a restaurant. I thought that was, I thought that was very considerate of him, almost chivalrous. I was comfortable with the idea of going to his house. I prefer discussing matters of disagreement around a private table. Plus, I really wanted to see how Christians lived. That's 1 Peter 3. People are going to come to you looking for a reason for your hope and asking questions. I want to see this. I had never seen such a thing. So I took him up on it. I was excited to meet a real born-again Christian and find out why he believed such silly ideas. I assume that this dinner was another aspect of my research. Now again, think of that road that just lies open now to Rosaria. An open invitation, obstacles removed, no hostility, kind letter, a kind invitation, come to the home and meet Jesus. She continues, the most memorable part of the meal was Ken's prayer before the meal. I had never heard anyone pray to God as if God cared, as if God listened, and as if God answered. This is a woman who came out of the Unitarian Universalist Church. It was not a pretentious prayer uttered for the heat of the table to overhear. During our meal, 
they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions of the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. The road is open. I left their table needing to know a number of things. Does God exist? If God does exist, what does He expect from me? How do I communicate with Him? How do I know who He is and what He wants? What if God is dead? Do I have the courage to face the truth either way? Now think of that road again. Pastor Smith just puts Rosaria on this road through the desert to meet Jesus. And she continues, before I ever step foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and on, on and off again, studying Scripture and my heart. If Ken and Floyd had invited me to church at that first meal, I would have careened like a skateboard off a cliff and would have never come back. At this point, I read and reread the Bible. I read it voraciously and compulsively as I do all books. I spent about five hours each day reading the Bible. And she continues, one thing that really struck me about Ken and Floyd's character during these years was how unselfish they were. That's John the Baptist. It's not about me. I observed that they fed and housed and counseled countless people from all walks of life. Again, isn't that John the Baptist's approach to ministry? Selflessness just points people beyond ourselves. When you're self-absorbed, people tend to get absorbed with you. Deflect the glory to Christ. She writes, One night, Ken and Floyd introduced me to a man named R. He had been a former sex addict and heavy drug user. We became fast friends. R shared the gospel with great spontaneity and relevance. He would soon become my link to the church. Now, I do wonder how we would respond if someone like Rosaria came here to UBC. She writes, I imagine how absurd my red truck with the gay rights bumper stickers and Narwhal National Abortion Rights Action League support sticker would look in the church's parking lot with all the minivans with stickers that read abortion stops a beating heart. Rosaria then relates how she began to drive the church. But she parked in a parking lot across the street and she just watched. I figured that people probably didn't wear jeans as I always did and the women probably didn't wear a crew cut. Sometimes I would just sit there and read the New York Times and drink my Starbucks coffee and watch. I laughed out loud once I once realized that I had become a church stalker. And she also relates this, the closer I got to the church, the closer I got to Christ, the more opposition there was. Even a kind of satanic opposition from professing Christians. She writes, during this time of struggle, others tried to help. The Methodist pastor and the dean of the chapel at Syracuse University believed that I did not have to give up everything to honor God. 
Indeed, he told me, since God made me a lesbian, I gave God honor by living an honorable lesbian lifestyle. He told me that I could have Jesus and my lesbian lover. This was a very appealing prospect, but I had been reading and rereading Scripture. And there are no such marks of postmodern both and in the Bible. Plus, truth be told, I was getting tired of my relationship with T. Something in my value system was changing. Friends, would you think about that Methodist pastor? What is he doing? He is throwing obstacles in the road. Come to Jesus. He's throwing down obstacles. He's turning the road aside. He's throwing up the barricades. Our job, friends, is just to remove all those and let people come straight to Jesus. At long last, she writes, the following Sunday, I started to go to the church and not for research. That morning, February 14th, 1999, I emerged from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later was sitting in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I share this detail with you not to be lurid, but merely to make the point that you never know the terrain someone else has walked to come to worship the Lord. I love that word terrain. Terrain, that really is the key term here. People come to Christ through all kinds of terrain. And what is your job? What would John the Baptist say? Just make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Just level out the terrain so people can come straight to the heart of Christ. Rosaria confesses, That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. Let me say that again. That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I visually felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real, and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. Think of that. It didn't feel like sin, but I prayed to be able to repent. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all. My sexuality, my profession, my community, my taste, my books, and my tomorrows. And that all came about because somebody came along and just leveled the road straight to Jesus. Shall we pray? Our Father, we live in a world that's hungry, that's hurting, that's confused, certainly confused. Lord, keep people carry about deep wounds. What comes out of their mouth, Lord, is not what is in their hearts. 
And I pray, Lord, that each of us would not be an obstacle to people's coming to meet Jesus. And Lord, that our our goal in all ministry efforts, evangelistic efforts, would be to point people straight to Jesus beyond ourselves, just to let them see Jesus. We thank you for the ministry that goes on here through Cross Impact, International Ministry, Bible Studies. And I pray, Lord, that your hand of blessing would be upon these ministries as we seek just to point people to Jesus and to let them see who He truly is. And Father, we're just so grateful to know Christ. We're thankful for the testimony of so many martyrs. We're thankful, Lord, on this day when we remember what happened more than 500 years ago now in Wittenberg, Germany, when a brave man stood up to defy the Church of Rome and to live under a death sentence for the duration of his life, that we might indeed have the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we'd have a greater appreciation of the wonderful truth of sola scriptura and justification by faith alone. May we remember, Lord, the heritage that we have and all that you've done, Lord, through servants in the past, martyrs in the past, to allow us to worship so freely today. May we give thanks to you and thanks to Christ in particular, Lord, for what he has done through people who have leveled the road that we might worship so freely today. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.